And welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Poking Around Drug Trends Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Place. And in this episode of our podcast, we look back at the month that was April 2022, and we look at stories in the news concerning drug trends across the country. Once again, my name is Nick Place. I'm the host here on the Poking Around Drug Trends Podcast. You can reach out to us. Check us out at route961training.com. Or if you have any questions or input for our podcast, you can send us an email at pokingaroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you're not familiar with the show, every month we are going to put out an episode where we look back again at stories across the country involving drug trends. And that segment in our podcast is called In Case You Missed It. And for this month, we are going to lead off with a story that caught national headlines out of the Garden State, New Jersey. New Jersey Attorney General Matthew Platkin issued a memo earlier this month to police chiefs across the Garden State that said that they may not take any adverse action against officers who use marijuana off-duty in regards to recreational marijuana becoming legal in the Garden State on April 21st. So according to an article that was published on Police One magazine, I stand corrected, recreational marijuana became legal to consume and possess in New Jersey in 2021, but April 1st, 2022, recreational dispensaries across the state opened up. So the Attorney General in New Jersey said that officers, thankfully, thankfully, would be barred from using marijuana while on duty, so at least we have that. But they said that they would allow for officers to use marijuana while they were off-duty, provided they didn't show up to work impaired. The article further states that the Garden State's new marijuana legalization laws give employers the right to maintain a drug-free workplace and outline procedures for suspected drug use on the job. If an officer is suspected of being high or using marijuana on duty, the officer could be required to take a drug test. The drug test must also include a physical examination because THC, the psychoactive ingredient marijuana, can stay in the body for weeks. There were a lot of reader comments in the Police One article that was published, many from those in law enforcement who disagreed with this new policy. Now, I will start out with this. So the last part of this memo that was put out that... The attorney general there recommended police chiefs could or could request a physical examination because, and I'm guessing here they're looking for impairment because THC stays in the body for so long that they're looking for evidence of current impairment. So I guess the million-dollar question is, who do you send your officer to if you suspect impairment, if you think that the officer can't do their job because they were using marijuana before or during work hours? Who do you send your officer to to be evaluated? Now, you know me. I'm a big, I'm a drug recognition expert myself. I'm a big proponent of the DRE program. So my first thought when I saw that article and I read the whole, we're going to evaluate somebody, have a physical examination for THC because it stays in your system so long. So who's going to be the evaluator? Who's going to make the decision? I'm not just concerned for police officers, but for anybody anybody who is subject to random drug screening or tested for drug screening in a recreational marijuana state such as New Jersey, who's going to be the person that that does the examination and determines whether or not somebody is impaired while they're at work? Is it going to be somebody, again, I'm plugging the DRE program, but somebody who has had that rigorous training in the past that 
not only the, the training itself has went through rigorous trials and been proven in court by court across this country to be reliable, and then somebody who, again, not just anybody, but somebody who is in, has that training and the experience in it and has administered this procedure and has come across many individuals who have been under the influence of not just cannabis, but other drugs that impair. Or, and I can see this happening, let's be honest, or are we going to see consulting businesses pop up across the country with people that haven't had that training and experience that a veteran DRE has? Okay. I definitely could see that coming up. And I, you know, if it was me, okay, if it was me and I got pulled, pulled across and, um, accused of showing up to or to work under the influence of marijuana and um you know and i wanted to fight for my job or be in a lawsuit to get um some type of damages against my employer for making those ac accusations against me if i worked for the law offices of ubish dubish and goobish this is what i would attack and i definitely could see again an employer, you know, let's be honest, employers, a lot of times they go for, you know, for cost purposes, they, they get the, the person who's willing to do the job for the least amount of money. And now you get some fly-by-night consulting business popping up that doesn't have people properly trained and can't identify what is and what isn't cannabis impairment. I, it, it, again, I don't, it would really depend on who's doing the evaluation and I can see that going awry or another option here going to a, let's say a clinic and having a doctor or a nurse evaluate you. And I'm not knocking their training. Okay. I'm not knocking their, ex, you know, their medical knowledge, but that to that point, how many nurses or doctors do you see out there evaluating somebody for impairment, right? I mean, they have a, when, when I, during the course of my 20 year career, I've seen many people brought to medical facilities under the influence of a drug other than alcohol. And what do those facilities do to determine impairment? They have the person take a test, either peeing a cup or um, take a blood test to say determine alcohol level or any other drugs on board other than alcohol. They have the person do a test. They're not going through and administering psychophysical tests to determine impairment. Okay, so again, what procedures are they doing? And, you know, let's be honest here. I think the Attorney General here, as far as law enforcement, may have opened a Pandora's box that may not be able to be shut. Okay, but, um, you know, what procedures, again, going back to what I said earlier, what procedures and who is, who is the evaluator determining impairment for these physical examinations? Now, another point here with this whole story is there was quite a bit of banter going back and forth whether or not police officers should be allowed to do this. You got people on one side of the aisle that have said, look, times have changed. If other people in our state can take marijuana recreationally, why can't police officers, right? Why can't police officers do the same thing? Let's be honest, there's many psychotropic drugs out there that get people addicted. I personally have known police officers throughout my 20 years in law enforcement that have gotten addicted to prescription pills and had, had lost their jobs, had adverse health effects, lost their families, families marriages, etc. Alcohol abuse, right? I mean, look how bad this profession is affected by alcohol abuse due to many of the stressful things that we see in our job. Right, so you have legal substances like alcohol, you have legal prescription drugs out there that have caused adverse effects to law enforcement, and those are okay. But then you have now a new 
recreational drug or new, I mean, in the Garden State, they also consider marijuana legal for medicinal purposes, like that's allowed. But then, so you're not going to allow marijuana, but you are going to allow these other drugs that, again, have a history of abuse, not just in law enforcement, but for in other professions as well with high stress rates. And on the other side of the argument, you got the traditionalists that don't like marijuana and don't want to see officers under the influence of it. So, and I think where they have a point right now, and I think, again, this is where, especially for police officers, because we're sworn to uphold the law, not just state, but also federal laws. If I was a chief or sheriff right now who wanted to not allow my officers to use marijuana, and I was in a state where recreational marijuana was allowed, the one thing, the one thing I have in my back pocket right now to not allow officers to use marijuana is because on the federal level, marijuana remains a schedule one drug so for now until you know things change you would have that again in your back pocket if your officers wanted to use marijuana like look you were you swore an oath to uphold the law and as it stands marijuana is illegal on the federal level so for the time being i think again they would have a little bit of ammunition provided that marijuana remains illegal on the federal level however again and i'll go back to what i said earlier once things change on the federal level and you see marijuana decriminalized or removed from Schedule One, the Schedule One drug category, I think that changes. Um, and I brought up other substances too, but I, I um, listened to a podcast recently on the Street Cop uh, podcast, which again, we're we here at Route Nine Six Ones, we're fans of anybody who does a fantastic job, and we admire the work of those over at the Street Cop training. Even though some would say that we're competitors, we do admire the work that they do. But one of the, I think it was the owner of the company, went on and said, like, look, years ago, when prohibition ended and you had alcohol become legalized, there were many at the time there too that said police officers and others should not be allowed to use alcohol at work. But over time, that changed and officers were allowed or, you know, and, uh, and uh, other people in various job capacities were allowed to use, were allowed to consume alcohol once prohibition was ended. And I think you're going to, you know, I would agree. I think you're going to see the same thing here once marijuana is legalized on the federal level for recreational purposes and states start to follow suit, you know, what's to say that you can't use that drug anymore, especially, okay, especially if, again, an officer who, police officers are, are subject to a very stressful job, a police officer may, instead of getting a prescription for Xanax or some other type of prescription drug out there, and again, we've, we've talked about this before on the podcast and there's other sources out there, that a lot of these prescription drugs are highly addictive. So how are you going to allow one officer, who, let's say, who has pain management issues, be allowed to essentially take legalized heroin, aka oxycodone, you're okay with that, and them taking oxycodone for pain and potentially getting addicted to opiates? but you're not going to allow marijuana to be used, okay? Um, again, from an argument standpoint, I, I, again, I think once marijuana is legalized federally, if you're a chief or sheriff or mayor or whatever, and you wanted to prevent your police officers from using marijuana, I think you're going to have a hard time doing that because there's plenty of research and data out there on not just, you know, just the prescription drugs out there, but alcohol abuse 
uh, that that is that occurs with and you know we're okay with allowing police officers to consume another legal recreational substance, alcohol, right? Provided you don't show up on, on duty impaired, and we're allow uh, we allow officers to take uh, prescription drugs for uh, you know I mentioned pain management, but anxiety, sleep, Christ, you know how many police officers do you know that have issues sleeping? Right, they work odd hours and night shifts, and they have problems sleeping, and you're gonna let them take things like uh, Valium and you know, Ambien, right, right? You let, you know, officers take drugs, these prescription drugs, but then you're not going to let them take a, a, a recreational drug like marijuana that helps with the same thing. Now, I'm not, you know, a hippie here uh, wearing my 420 shirt around, but again, from an argument standpoint, I don't see that holding up water once marijuana is legalized, especially on the federal level. Now, a story involving drug impairment at the workplace there was a story shared earlier across and it hit the news media here in late April. And as far as talking about how to deal with somebody who shows up to the workplace impaired, here's one instance of how things were done correctly. So this story hit the news cycle out of California, Marin County, which is north of San Francisco. This past week here, uh, late April, a Terry or Tara Linda High School teacher, Tegan Lionheart, 46 years old, showed up to work intoxicated and police were called mid-morning to investigate the teacher on suspicion of public intoxication and child endangerment. So officers were dispatched to the school. School officials shared their concerns with law enforcement. And the police had a drug recognition expert that was sent there to evaluate Mr. Lionheart for that suspicion. And the drug recognition expert determined that the teacher was under the influence of alcohol, a prescription drug, and cannabis and was not safe to care for the safety of the children of the uh, while they were, excuse me, I guess her, okay, while they were in her classroom. So there's an instance here where the employer had suspicions that the teacher here showed up to work impaired. They contacted the authorities, and the authorities here, what they did, and now they did have a criminal investigation here, so they're gathering evidence, and there's, I think, again, Steve Kreitchi, who we will have on in a future episode, our state coordinator here in the Badger State, Steve Krejci, has said there's something like 182 different points, pieces of evidence that you can gain through the DRE standardized and systematic procedures. So I would just say this, if, again, going back to who is and who isn't qualified to administer these things to uh, people in the employment realm, but if this is good enough to survive a criminal court challenge, and again, show evidence in a criminal court of law where the standard of proof is much higher than in civil cases. So again, you know, in a criminal case, you have to prove things beyond a reasonable doubt. And with civil employment, that standard is much, much lower. So if it can survive the criminal court, who's, you know, why wouldn't it survive in the lower standard? So again, an example here on how things were done correctly. And it looks like the DRE was on point in this case in California. The news report showed that the teacher came back with three times the amount of alcohol in their system, which isn't quite impressive, really, for you know mid-morning, because you can't be drunk all day, I guess, if you don't start drinking in the morning. Uh, but yet you wonder how many, you know, to be serious, though, how many instances of this are across the country. I think those of you who attended the traffic safety conference, we heard of a case in Wisconsin in September that was decided, a court case where a teacher showed up to work impaired and they were able to get a conviction for impaired driving first or OWI first offense.
based on the statements of the teachers who were present who witnessed uh, their fellow teacher show up to work impaired and how the how that person how that teacher acted that one day and the impairment that he exhibited that one day was quite different than their usual conduct that they had or usual behavior and uh, how again all those observations held up in court so Things are changing again. This is as we legalize, especially drugs like marijuana, what procedures are going to be in place to show workplace impairment? In this instance here, now again, circumstances here are a little bit different than most because you have somebody who's responsible, a teacher who is responsible for the welfare of children. So police were called to investigate the teacher's behavior. But long-term, to go with the previous article, if show, somebody shows up to work impaired, how are you going to evaluate that person other than having them pee in a cup? Are you going to have somebody who has the proper training and background and experience, or are you going to go with a fly-by-night company? So something to follow here as we see more of these cases go forward. Now, as I do this podcast, I'm in a hotel room in uh, South Milwaukee. And the reason why I'm in this hotel room is we're doing the Deary Spring School field certifications. And as an instructor, you get to come across people in the Milwaukee area who are, are under the influence of a drug other than alcohol. Many of those, many of those involve opiates, okay? Things like heroin and fentanyl that people are, are found to be under the influence of. And they agree to come with police officers and help the new Deary candidates, those police officers, learn how to identify people under the influence of a drug other than alcohol, and again, many times uh, they're opiates and narcotics. And, um, you know, some people that go, some of the volunteers that come through, some of them aren't, you know, real talkative, but there are others who are. And so the ones who are talkative, and many of you who have attended my trainings and presentations, I've spoken to you that these people are gold. I mean, these people, these, the, the, again, the, the, addicts some people don't like the word addicts but let's again just for lack of a better term the addicts who um you know that they that these officers find on the streets um the ones who are talking of their gold they they the, the experiences that they have the information they're willing to share with you they are the true experts and i always you know i, I taught a recruit class this past week and one thing i told the recruits is you treat these, these people like gold because if you do and you give respect you will get respect and they will give you a lot of good information about how addiction works. But anyway, uh, we came across uh, the two in particular last night as we were training new DREs who told me that they got on their opiate addiction because of an introduction to opiates through prescription pain medications. Okay, two of them specifically mentioned that they got hooked on opiates because of oxycodone and it, it evolved from there and it went on to other harder drugs they eventually switched to heroin and fentanyl and then there's it seems like again milwaukee in particular crack cocaine is king down here other parts of the state here in wisconsin the primary the primary stimulant is going to be methamphetamine but down here we see a lot of crack cocaine use so because, again, something that caught my eye here in the news cycle was a story that was published by Pain Medicine News, where there were doctors who work in the pain management industry involving the prescription of drugs like opiate drugs, like oxycodone, and how that plays into the current opiate crisis. And I've shared with the, with the, the listeners here on the podcast that ideas I get for the, in case you missed it, 
they are these these articles are shared by Tom Page on the Drug Recognition Expert Forum. So again, last night at Field Certs, I had two people tell me that they got into heroin and fentanyl use because of their addiction to prescription opiates. And I know if those of you who have listened to me present in the past have talked about how when the prescription opiates were cut off, many people then turned to things like heroin and then that uh, trend that now has evolved to fentanyl and other novel opiates. So again, this article here caught my attention and I dug into a little bit more uh, in preparation for this podcast. And there were allegations uh, that they were talking about made by people in the, I guess the pharmaceutical company that said that this allegation where prescription opiates have significantly contributed to the current opiate crisis were overblown. So my speculation here, those people don't know the F they're talking about. These are people maybe who um, are in the prescription drug industry and are trying to downplay the significance of prescription opiates, which is completely false, okay, completely false. Prescription opiates is what started this current opiate crisis. Doctors overprescribed medication, and when those medications were cut off, people had to find something to support their addiction. And many of them turn to heroin. And then thus, as the drug trend evolved, now we have fentanyl, and people have now switched to that, which is why you're seeing a lot of over, um, as far as uh, drug overdoses and that kind of thing. You know, Now we have stronger, again, things like fentanyl and other novel opiates that are driving it. So whoever says that, and again, they try to use stats. And um, the one doctor here that they interviewed, um, when he was asked if he thought that those allegations of the prescription drugs driving this whole crisis were overblown, he said, I don't think it was overblown. So quote, um, I don't think it's overblown. I think that those things are two things. I think that one, we don't have a good sense of how many people are being prescribed opiates for pain actually graduate to misuse or addiction. If you look in the evidence base and it fluctuates from 1% to 40%, we really don't have a good understanding of how many people actually graduate and in context of what he's saying graduate is move on to those harder drugs like heroin and fentanyl. I think that's where people say it's overblown. They're referencing. I think that's what they're referencing. So he's talking about the, some of the statistics that are out there. Um, they're referencing a small fraction of people who got prescribed opiates actually graduated to misuse, misuse or addiction. And we heard a lot of that when we were talking about heroin. They were people saying, well, this is a small proportion is going to graduate to misuse. And then an even smaller proportion are going to graduate to heroin. So heroin really is not that big of a deal, end quote. So then the, the um, article here in the podcast, they, there's a little segment that they talk about this particular issue goes on and um, their opinion here that it's not overblown, that there is uh, significant problems with people who start out with prescription opiates and then move on to heroin. So again, th something I'd like to point out here is you, you have to be careful of the information that you read and that you get. I've shared with you many of interviews and experiences I've had talking to people and how they got started or what led to their demise or eventually their death was they got um, addicted to prescription opiates and then the misuse and eventually abuse of illicit uh, narcotics such as heroin and fentanyl led to their ultimate demise. So, and those of you who, again, listen to my presentations, I've spoken to you about a doctor that we had in 
where I live and work in Manitowoc who overprescribed opiates to lethal levels and not just got our community addicted to prescription opiates, but many people from other communities came to Manitowoc for this doctor. And he was renowned, renowned for his overprescribing of prescription drugs. But one day the DEA came in, cut him off, and then we saw in our community those illicit narcotics such as heroin and fentanyl. We saw the abuse of those take off. And many of it, much of it was due to this one particular doctor. And I can't tell you how many times I've come across people who have shared their stories with me and they said how they got started was that they were on a high dose of prescription opiates and when they were cut off, they had to turn to something and what they turned to was heroin. Now regarding drug control strategies, the Biden administration this month on April 21st released their 2022 national drug control strategy and there were a couple bullet points in here on things that they want to accomplish to address addiction and the overdose epidemic. So we'll go through some of these bullet points here and then talk a little bit of it after. Um, so uh, the big thing that they're pushing here is addressing untreated addiction for those at risk of an overdose. So things that they're going to look for here and things that they're going to push and they talk about here, 2020 National Survey on Drug Use and Health. Uh, among 41.1 million people who needed treatment for substance abuse disorders, uh, 2.7 million of them received treatment. Only 2.7, 6.5% actually received treatment from a treatment facility over the previous year. One reason for that gap is that people with addiction and those who care for them face too many barriers for treatment. Um, they also talk about things like naloxone and syringe service programs are often restricted or underfunded at the community level, which limits access for people who use those drugs. For example, some states still have legal barriers that limit access to naloxone. And even in states where those barriers don't exist, uh, naloxone does not always make it to those who are most at risk. So they're trying to change some things around here and uh, they're looking to expand evidence-based treatment facilities that reduce overdose risk and mortality. And it also emphasizes the need to develop stronger data collection and analysis systems to better deploy public health interventions. And the Biden administration also says they're going to get tough on drug trafficking and illicit drug profits. So they're going to have law enforcement agencies at all levels work to reduce domestic and international cultivated and synthetic drug production and trafficking with the goal of protecting Americans. We're going to protect you. However, drug producers continue to produce entirely new synthetic drugs and drug traffickers continue to refine their methods and techniques for distributing them throughout our communities. So they're going to get tough on that. Uh, which is a good thing. We're not criticizing. We're just using the voice here to keep people interested. Um, they're going to, so the big one here, disrupt the financial activities of transnational criminal organizations or TSOs that manufacture illicit drugs and traffic them into the United States. Hey, if you want to hit a drug dealer, um, you want to hit them hard, you got to go to their pocketbook. I've explained to you, uh, many of you listeners who've listened to me in presentations and in podcasts before, the reason why people sell drugs is to make money, right? That's that's what they're in it for, to make money. So hit them where it hurts, right in their pocketbook. Um, they're going to reduce the supply of illicit drugs through domestic uh, collaboration and international coordination. We'll talk about that one here in a second with some uh, insight given by Keith Graves. If you don't follow Keith 
at Graves and Associates, I recommend that you do. He's a wealth of knowledge. And, and some other things here, they're going to um, reduce the supply of illicit drugs smuggled across our borders. Well, uh, again, some criticism here to the Biden administration to stop illicit drugs smuggled across our border. You would first have to protect our border and not let any Tom, Dick, or Harry cross it. Just some advice. Now, let's look at some things here that are good, that I think are good anyway, uh, with, with their policy here. Uh, one, they're going to try to improve data systems. So we talked a little bit about in the last segment here about being careful about data that you read and look at. So if, if, they, if they're really trying to do a good job here, hopefully they can gain some insight using their data approach to help coordinate and better attack this opiate crisis. And they're going to look at different facets of data everything from treating addiction to how to combat drug traffickers. So that's not bad. I think that's a good approach here to take. You're trying to get a starting point or figure out what works and what doesn't. So um, it's good that they're doing some introspection to improve. Another good thing that they're doing here that I like is they're supporting evidence-based treatment. So they're trying to get people, long story short, they're trying to get people help. So they talk about here, they're people who are at the highest risk of overdosing, people experiencing homelessness and incarcerated or trying to re-enter society. Um, they're trying to go after the people who are at the highest risk. So hopefully they get some success here. Um, you know, this, this kind of thing impacts all of us having people who... Um, aren't productive members of society due to their drug impairment, right? We want to get those people back on their feet. So they're going to focus on that. And I know those of you who work in treatment, um, I know many of you who work in law enforcement and, you know, I spoke a little bit, uh, here in the last few minutes about people that we come across when we train new drug recognition experts, many, you know, all of us, many people that we come across with addiction have told us that they try to seek treatment, but there's just nowhere to go and then their habit continues. So trying to find treatment for those people at the highest risk category is a good thing. It does help everybody else. So I, I think that's, again, good that they're focusing on that segment of the population that's hardest hit that just can't find ways to get better. Another bullet point, and they mentioned it several times during their uh, press release, was having things like naloxone, or otherwise known as Narcan, available for people. We're a fan of that. We think that that's a good idea. And they go on talking about high-risk individuals. It's not just, Narcan's not just for that. But again, with the trend that we are seeing here in the Badger State, and we've seen it elsewhere across the country, but um, the uptick here in the Badger State involving fraudulent medications. So knock off oxycodone, knock off Xanax or other prescription drugs um, that look like the real thing, but when in fact they're actually a novel opiate or fentanyl and then people experience overdoses. So having that, that Narcan available to better suit people uh, in their time of need when they suffer an opiate overdose is a good thing and having that there. I, I think most places are on board, but maybe there's a few others yet that have not, like they said in the press release, have not revised their statutes. So having that available is a good thing. And then the last bullet point that they talk about is they're going to go after the drug traffickers, the sources, and then the money. They're going to hit them where it hurts, right in their wallet. Again, a good bullet point, good talking point, but we'll share some insight that was given by others who disagree with how much of an impact they're really going to have based on current things going around, not just in this country, but their, their own strategies and relationships with other countries. Now, let's talk about some holes that I see 
with the comprehensive path forward to address addiction. First of which, and this impacts us on the local level, are the harm reduction strategies pushed by the far left on providing the paraphernalia needed to ingest illegal drugs, mainly the intravenous use paraphernalia, so everything except the drug, the, the needles, the tins, the rubber tie-offs, the cotton balls, everything you need but the drug. And now we're even seeing that change to safe injection sites. And also, too, you're seeing more and more of these fentanyl test strips where if you want to be safe, if you want to make sure that your dope doesn't contain fentanyl, we now hand out strips that test for fentanyl for a safer drug experience. In what right mind is it okay for heroin to be safe to inject? Where do these people come from, right? In what right mind? You know, when people make these, why should I take you seriously if you think heroin's not as bad as fentanyl? I mean, seriously, that's like me doing a home improvement project and I chop off my finger on the miter saw and I said, well, it could have been worse. It could have been my whole hand. I mean, seriously, where do these people get their, their thought process? If you and like, look, if you want to put more money into harm reduction and putting more things like Narcan out there or putting more treatment based programs, I'm 100 percent on your side. I really am. I want to see people get better. But where do people get better when you enable them? You enable them by letting them continue their drug habit. I'm sorry, but this needs to stop. If you want to help, help people get back on their feet, I'm all for it. But you're not getting people back on their feet when you allow them, when you enable them to continue their drug habits. And then, you know, I talked to you before about, about these needle exchange clinics and elsewhere. And the, the impetus for this particular podcast was when my kid found intravenous drug paraphernalia, found some used needles near my house, and got me on this kick to do this podcast. And you show me anywhere in this country where those strategies have worked. I dare you. I freaking dare you to show me. Okay? Everywhere that these programs are put up, they don't work. And you see more and more of the broken window where just people disobey the law and more problems result from it. Okay? Like, well, where's your proof, Nick? My proof is places like Seattle and San Francisco. Okay? Go to those places or Portland. Dumps, dumps of cities where people openly abuse drugs and, and you see the quality of life dissipate in those cities. And I don't want where I live to turn into that because of harm reduction strategies like this one. And furthermore, on the whole uh, White House policy, some other opinion out there I'll share with you that I got off of. Again, the source for this is Graves and Associates. And again, I've expressed my um, appreciation and gratitude, etc., towards Keith Graves. I believe he's one of the best presenters on drug topics, and he has his own website here, too, where I got this off of, and he attacks going after drug traffickers and some other bullet points that were in the Biden administration, um, including the harm reduction strategies. Um, and he was, and he talked about his, his time in California as a police officer in uh, uh, northern San Francisco Bay Area and the issues he saw with that. And again, you can go, and not just San Francisco, you go anywhere, anywhere where they have these, these needle exchange clinics and fentanyl test strips, you, 
disaster just follows. You're not helping people. Anyway, so Keith talked about, and he's well-versed on uh, things on the international level as far as drug trafficking, dark net investigations, that kind of thing. But he wrote about how most of the uh, chain of fentanyl come, coming to the United States starts in China. He's uh, written extensively about China's gray war with the United States. He talks about what a gray war is. And he talked about here China has given tax incentives to fentanyl precursor manufacturers. So China's giving these companies an incentive to produce more of the precursors than, that are made to make fentanyl. And then those are shipped to drug trafficking organizations in Mexico. And they complete the manufacture of fentanyl and then bring it across our open border to the south. Again, I made my joke about the Biden administration stopping drugs at the border, but they haven't stopped anything. So how, if you're not going to you know, keep track of the border, someone have, have a semi-presence there, I mean, how are you going to stop the flow of narcotics into our country unless you start having a better presence stopping anything from entering our country? Um, and also, he said, uh, here, the unabated flow of fentanyl and methamphetamine ties up our resources, sucks up valuable money from our budget, and kills our citizens. And they, he uh, puts in here the China, uh, Chinese Communist Party. Uh, what they have done is cause chaos in the U.S. to give in tax incentives to their t chemical industry. Okay. So uh, he talks about the strategy not based in reality. Um, and he cites here that our partnerships with Mexico and China, um, to have these international strategies work, you'd have to have places like Mexico and China work well with us. And if you see, if you do a search here, Mexican president, Andre Manuel Lopez, um, he has, um, in essence, he's gone after he's in the past, he's gone. He wanted to prosecute American agents in Mexico for going after drug trafficking organizations. And he's also, and again, Keith elaborates a little bit here. He's had a very comfortable relationship with these drug trafficking organizations. He doesn't, I mean, essentially he doesn't want to work with the United States. So how can you have a drug control policy with other countries, with countries who don't want to work with you? Good point. So, in essence here, we do hope that there is some good that comes out of this Biden administration policy. We do think there are some good things in it, but there are certainly many holes in it due to the policies of many in the far left. Again, I don't want to make this show about politics, but we have our doubts here, and so do others, on how well this strategy is going to work based on the experiences and things we've seen from cities with these progressive agendas. Let's finish up this episode by going shotgun style. Shotgun style. We'll go around and look at some stories here that also hit the news that we think is relevant and newsworthy. First, starting in Denver, the Denver Post published an article, an opinion piece on how the state of Colorado is going to be kind of ground zero for legalizing other drugs that have long been illegal, things like psilocybin mushrooms and essentially making those drugs legal for medicinal purposes. We've talked about that previous in the podcast and also in other presentations I've mentioned here too, that the groundwork laid to legalize things like psilocybin mushrooms and other hallucinogens, they're using the same playbook that the medical marijuana industry used years ago in the, in the 1980s to legalize marijuana. Now you're starting to see the same thing happen in places like Colorado. That same playbook is being used to advocate for treatment of certain um, mainly psychological conditions and to treat those people with those conditions with 
hallucinogens such as psilocybin mushrooms. So stay tuned. There's going to be more of it, but it is ground zero. You are going to see that this strategy spread, spread, spread to other states. Now, speaking of things that should, should spread to other states, those of you who live in Tennessee, the volunteer state, passed a bill that would require drunk drivers to pay child support for killing a child's parent. Where was this before? We need more of this. We, need, we, ser we seriously do. We need more of this. So they passed a law where if you drive drunk and you kill someone's mom or dad, uh, you will have to pay child support to that child. Now, nothing will ever uh, replace the emotional and, and the memories and all that uh, when somebody's mom or dad dies. But at least they're taking some steps here to give some type of comp compensation, I guess. I mean, you're not going to replace mom and dad, but at least they're, you know, mom and dads also do, you know, <laughs> those of you with kids understand the, the, the financial support you, get, you give your kids, you, you get them things. And when mom and dad get taken out of the picture unexpectedly due to someone's poor decisions, there should be some t type of compensation to make that kid whole. Again, nothing's ever going to replace mom and dad, but um, kudos to Tennessee for taking a step forward to correct that somewhat. Again, you're not going to replace it all, but to at least get some financial compensation and hopefully, you know, hopefully here that the goal is deterrence so that people don't drive impaired to begin with and you don't have to lose mom and dad at all. Now, where this Tennessee law would come in handy feeds into our next news story that we saw come across here in April. And Ontario, uh, in Canada, the province of Ontario, a judge there upheld the Ontario legal limit for THC in one system, which is five nanograms. So they, uh, this one hit the news cycle. A 21-year-old man suspected to be under the influence of marijuana pled guilty to causing a crash in 2020 that killed a 37-year-old mom and her three kids. Jesus, man. Um he denied he was impaired, but uh, as Bob Euchre would say, he was just a bit outside. He came back at 40 nanograms, 40 nanograms. That's a lot. That's a lot of THC in your system. Anyway, his lawyers argued that the Canadian law with 5 nanograms of THC per uh, milliliter of blood is arbitrary and not sound. Um, so they presented their case. Uh an Ontario judge ruled that the THC limit there, and we talked about, you know, this whole five nanogram business is, you know, somewhat arbitrary, and there's not a lot of data to show that. Um, so they, they tried to make their case there, but what was nice here and how that we think uh, the judge did a good job here is he upheld the law, okay? So what they said here is, quote, the impact here is consistent with Parliament's stated intention with the possession of cannabis was legalized was to strengthen the laws with a view to not only detect impaired drivers, but also to deter individuals who consume cannabis from getting behind the wheel of a car when they represent a risk to the public. Okay. So again, we talked about this whole five nanograms is somewhat, you know, people view it as somewhat arbitrary and there's still a lot of work to be done to find a per se limit for THC with many States. And of course the Canadian government coming up with five nanograms, but again, you know, whether people are impaired at five nanograms is a discussion for another day. But again, the legislative intent of these laws right now is to, to deter people from getting behind the wheel after they consumed cannabis. And we talked about the last episode too, you know, as far as polydrug use 
at what point do you start considering alcohol? I know there's no alcohol with this particular case, but when do you start considering alcohol and can cannabis and what are the per se levels when you mix those two recreational drugs together? And there should be some, some laws refined to reflect that poly drug use. But again, we like this decision here that the judge here said, again, we got to have something in place. This is what our legislators came up with. They, they wanted five nanograms, not only to help detect impaired drivers, but also deter those from getting on the road to begin with. Another story out of Canada dealing with drug impairment. And for many police officers, they're a bit apprehensive to deal with commercial motor vehicles. And they're just, again, just not familiar with it. But you hear stories such as this out of Thunder Bay, Ontario, of a commercial truck driver who got into a single vehicle crash, found with crystal meth and fentanyl, and arrested after a drug recognition expert determined he was under the influence of a drug other than alcohol. So, again, many police officers are a little apprehensive to do commercial motor vehicle enforcement. But every year at the DRE National Conference, we hear from different presenters at breakout sessions and how they were successful finding many impaired drivers who operate commercial motor vehicles. So they do exist. And here's another example of that. Um, I've had a few of these in my career. And I'll say this, they, they're a little bit, I wouldn't say scary to investigate, but scary from the standpoint of these are people who are operating heavy machinery big vehicles that can cause a lot of damage. So these are the type of operators you want to get off of the road, right? And there's plenty, this is just one news story and one example, but there are plenty of other instances out there. So don't be afraid if you were in law enforcement to look into these cases. If you come across a suspected impaired driver with commercial motor vehicles, these are people you want to get off the road because when they get into crashes with these big, heavy vehicles, a CMV driver under the influence of a drug other than alcohol and cannot operate said CMV correctly due to his or her impairment can really cause some damage. And these are people we want to get off the roadway. And lastly, Walmart and CVS pharmacies have blocked or delayed telehealth Adderall prescriptions. Jesus, Lord. It appears that in the COVID crisis, there have been telehealth consul consultations. This is just unbelievable. So people talk to their doctor about their ADHD, and then the doctor doesn't even meet with these people, and they're prescribed pretty much prescription methamphetamine. Dear Lord, no wonder we have so many problems with prescription drugs. This is insane. But at least you have to give Walmart and CVS some credit here. So they recognize the issue with handing out Adderall and other similar uh, prescription stimulants to people who never had face-to-face -face contact with a doctor and probably very likely, let's face it, not properly diagnosed. So kudos to Walmart and CVS for stepping up and not either filling those prescriptions or delaying them upon further review. This is just insane. And you wonder why we have so many kids addicted to Adderall and how prevalent we see prescription stimulants out there. It's because of policies like this. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. If your doctor says your kid has ADHD or your teacher or who a social worker, whatever, give them the business. They need to hear that this is BS. There's too many kids out there being prescribed these drugs who don't need it. And as a result, their brain chemistry, this massive amount of dopamine release is going to just devastate their brain chemistry in the long term. So do not fall for it. Kids are normally going to be hyperactive. Not all of them need Adderall. Hats off to Walmart and CVS for putting their foot down. 
That wraps up another episode of the Poking Around Drug Trends podcast. And again, in this episode of In Case You Missed It, we looked at drug stories that impacted our country and not just our country, across the world. We share some stories this week or this episode from Canada as well. Hey, we know you have other venues you can listen to, other podcasts. We appreciate your time here on the Poking Around Drug Trends podcast. Reach out to us. Check us out at route961training.com. We'd love to hear from you. Send us your comments, questions to pokingaroundpodcast at gmail.com. So once again, my name is Nick Place. This has been the Poking Around Drug Trends Podcast. We'll see you next time.